0: Well, this morning we're going to do something different than we usually do. Uh, usually we just go through, uh, work through a book of the Bible and uh, take the verses that come to us. We've spent a few weeks now on verses 4 and 5, which present to us the doctrine of divine election. The doctrine that teaches that before the foundation of the earth, God chose some to be saved in Christ. And that that choosing was according to his own will. What what caused his choosing was his own willing, the good pleasure of his own will, so that it culminates to the praise of his glorious grace. It's this doctrine, maybe above any other doctrine, that has brought uh, more debate in the Christian church uh, than maybe any other. Uh, It's a doctrine that's controversial. It kind of smacks you right in the face as you read it and causes us as we look at it to say does that really mean what it seems to say so throughout history all the way uh, back and since Paul wrote his letters and in with Augustine and an opponent Augustine had Pelagius uh, sides were taken on this what is the determining factor of one's salvation. Is it man or is it God? Throughout history, most have been willing to point to both are at work in some way, but the question comes down to what is the determining factor or who is the determining factor in salvation? So Pelagius taught that... uh, Adam and Eve, their children, were not fallen in such a way that they would be born any different than they were. Pelagius taught that uh, man was basically neutral and had the choice whether or not uh, to follow Christ, good or evil. And it was pretty easy biblically uh, for Augustine to point out that Uh, Scripture uh, does not uh, teach that. So at the Council of Ephesus, uh, Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy. Well then, semi-Pelagianism came after that. It's a modified view. If Pelagianism was naturalistic, meaning all uh, the working of salvation is going to come from within the man... Semi-Plagianism says when man fell uh, and Adam and Eve sinned, all their children uh, in a sense were weakened in their flesh. Uh, They had a sin nature, but they didn't fall so far where they couldn't still make a choice between God or not. It's as if man became sick. And uh, in uh, semi-Pelagianism, the final determinant, determiner of uh, salvation ultimately is in man's hands. And then after the Protestant Reformation, this issue uh, came back in, into light, and this is the term maybe you're more familiar with, a view called Arminianism, which is in some ways close to semi-Pelagianism, but different, uh, came to be uh, probably what might be most popular in the Protestant church uh, in America uh, today. And uh, often you hear people say, well, I don't care what Calvin thinks and I don't care what, Jacob Arminius thinks, I'm a Bible person. I don't use the word Calvinism, I don't use the word Arminianism, I'm only using the Bible. And in one sense, there's something good and true to that, but as soon as you want to read any theological work, uh, throughout history, there's been these two sides on this issue, and uh, for good or bad, uh, different Calvin on one side and Arminius on the other side, their names were used to describe uh, what how they argued for what they thought the Bible taught on the issue of election. And uh, Arminianism uh, says that, yes, man is totally depraved and is saved, they would say, all of grace. And they would Say say that by creating a doctrine that uh, isn't found in the Bible, but is taught by them. It's assumed it must be true. It's called prevenient grace. That although man was dead in his sins, what God did is he gave a sort of grace beforehand that brought people to a state where they had the ability to make the final choice unto salvation. Um, And you can see how it's similar to semi-Pelagianism in that at the end of the day the final actor, they're going to say it's all of grace because you couldn't be saved without what Christ did without prevenient grace and so even when a person chooses they'll say it's all of grace. But the determiner the determining factor is still uh, the will of man in Arminianism. And uh, this morning, rather than be afraid to use terms or be afraid to talk about it, and this is something Christians have talked about for years and years, uh, the question we always want to ask is not which view do I like, but which view is biblical. And I would argue that um, the main tension people feel in the doctrine of election is the same tension any human being feels when they come into contact with God himself. The tip of the spear, if you will, of God's godness is in the reality that he is sovereign his will is the freest and we are created and so in the doctrine of election we bump in to the God of the Bible the eternal God and I think the main offense comes uh, at that point thinking too highly of man and too lowly of God and so we feel these tensions rise I just listed some questions really I had pages and pages and pages of questions and how to organize this so I'm just going to throw some of the basic ones out we're going to go look at some texts and see if we can start uh, um, to at least rest in what uh, scripture teaches so, here's some of the common objections. It seems unjust that God would choose to save some people and not others, especially if they're unable to come to him, meaning they're, they're because of total depravity, because they're spiritually dead, uh, they couldn't obey the commands uh, to come to Christ because they're spiritually dead. That seems unjust, unfair. Uh, someone might say, why didn't God choose to save everyone? I believe God is love, and if God is love, and he was really choosing, then he would certainly choose to save everyone. Another one would be, how is God's sovereignty compatible with man's free will? Am I just a robot? If, if, If God's sovereign over everything, even human choices, then doesn't that make me merely a robot or the question if God is chosen who will be saved why then should anyone risk their life seeking to share the gospel of Christ with the lost why would missionaries risk their life to share the gospel with those who are lost if God has already determined before the foundation of the earth who would be saved and the last question, isn't God's election based on foreknowledge of who would believe? So the Arminian view would say, the way you deal with the election texts in the Bible is uh, you need to understand that God predestines according to whom he foreknows who would choose him. So God would look down the corridor of history, see who would choose him, and then that's who he elects before the foundation of of uh, the world so what's at stake here in my opinion is the godness of god first and foremost the question of who is sovereign who is the final determiner man or god what also is at stake here is our eternal comfort When Paul brings up the doctrine of election, he doesn't bring it up because he wants a debate and he wants to argue. He does it to comfort his people who are about to suffer great things. So our eternal comfort is at stake. God's special love. Does God love the world? Yes. Does God love the world the same way? everyone the same way? The scripture tells us no. He loves the whole world in a general way, and he loves his people like a bride. I love all you, but I don't love all you like I love Laura. The church experiences the intimate, special love of God. Our humility before God and man is at stake. If the Arminian view is right, your free will ultimately was better than your neighbor's free will who did not believe. And if the best thing you can do on this earth is trust God's word, then you just have to admit you're better. You're better than your lost neighbor if you believed and they did not. And so the pride that Uh, of man is at stake. And ultimately, I would say, our worship of God for His grace. Did Christ merely provide an opportunity when He died on the cross, or did He lay down His life for His sheep so that He would lose nothing of all that the Father gave Him? These are the sorts of questions uh, that come before us. I want to start, we'll see how far we get here. Uh, I, want to, I want to start in Romans 8.28 quickly, and I just want to look at what I think is the most common objection to the doctrine of election, or, or a redefinition of it. I would actually call it denial of election. But uh, this idea that God fore-elects those whom he foreknew. So in Romans 8.28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he says, For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. Also, you don't need to turn here, but in 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 1, here's how Peter starts out his letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect... Exiles in the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So, uh, someone might say, well, there, all the tension is gone. God predestines according to his foreknowledge and Arminian would say what this foreknowledge means is God looking ahead and foreseeing what people would do and then that's who he elects so real quickly the problems with this the text doesn't tell us that God looked ahead and had foreknowledge of what people would do in fact This word is never used in the New Testament uh, to describe God foreseeing the actions of man, but rather it says God foresaw people. It says for whom he foresaw. It doesn't say he foresaw what people would do. That has to be added into the text. And if God did look into the future, obviously God knows all things. He has no problem looking into the future. The question is, is does he base his election off it? We already know from our text in in Ephesians 1 that his election is according to the purpose of his own will. It's not according to what he sees. It's according to his own choice, his own divine uh, decree. But if God did look, what would he see in man? What God would see in man, what we're going to see in a moment, is he would see re- rebels that would never choose him. That's what God would see if he looked down the corridors of history and he looked uh, at mankind. Uh, the the third thing to point out here is just how this word is used in the Bible. Uh, we read it in English and we just think of knowing beforehand. That's what we Think, but this word was actually used of an intimate love that was set on his people. So it would read, those whom he intimately loved beforehand, he predestined. That would be the idea. Let me just uh, give you a few examples of of what I mean. Uh, The Bible tells us uh, not that God foreknew events, or actions people would do. But when the Bible's talking about foreknowledge, it talks about he foreknew the Son. He foreknew Israel. He foreknew the elect. And here's how the word is used, uh, for example, in Amos 3.2. Uh, he says, he's speaking to Israel, you only have I known Of all the families of the earth, therefore, I'll punish you for all your iniquities. You only have I known. Did God lose his omniscience? Did God forget there's all these other families on the earth? What the word means is, you, Israel, are the ones who I chose to put my special love upon. In Proverbs fifteen three, we read, "The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch uh, on the evil and the good." We know that He knows everyone, but Israel, is, He knew in a special way. In Hosea thirteen five, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. What does it mean that God knew them in the wilderness but that he was kind to them? That he provided for them? That he gave his special love to them? Our Psalm 1-6 says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows the way of the righteous in a saving way because the alternative, the wicked, it doesn't say he forgot them, but that they perish. And maybe the best example is in Genesis 4.1, when we read, now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, did Adam just look at her and say, oh, I know who she is, and then Cain came forth? We know that as we read this, that this foreknowing, or, or this knowing of Eve, that Adam had was an intimate love that produced Cain. And so the response to the idea that God would uh, look down the corridors of history, if he looked down, what would he see? He would see man dead in his trespasses and sins. He wouldn't find anyone looking for him, right? And the, the very meaning of the word means an intimate love. Uh, and by the way, if God's going to predestine some unto salvation, uh, the reason why foreknowledge comes first, it's no conspiracy here, is he has to know who he's going to predestine, right? He, he knows them. He sets his love upon them and he chooses them. And he we talked about last time that God chose us just like he chose Israel. It's not because you were bigger in numbers, Deuteronomy 7. It's not because I looked and you were the lovable ones. Israel, I loved you because I loved you. It's according to the purpose of his own heart. All right? Um, I'm looking at the clock here. Okay, I'm just going to give you one verse in this section. Uh, but there's a related doctrine to the doctrine of election, and that's the doctrine of God's uh, total sovereignty, extreme sovereignty, sovereignty over everything, over the dust that's floating around this room, the actions of man, the sparrows that fall off the leaf in the forest. God is sovereign over all these things, over everything? Uh, And the point here is, is if God's sovereign over everything, then of course he's also sovereign over the more specific thing, which would be the election of a person unto salvation. Uh, Turn with me to Isaiah 46. I just want to show you it in the scripture so you see it. Isaiah 46, we're going to begin in verse 8. Israel is worshipping idols and Isaiah is mocking them how they have to pick up their idols and and then the ox have to pull the idols and the gods they worship are burdens on the backs of beasts you know they forgot they've forgotten the god that carries them and has been carrying them and now they're worshipping God's they have to carry around. But when he wants to remind them who God is, here's what he says in verse 8, Isaiah 46, verse 8. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. So now, what are you like, God? What are they supposed to remember? Look at what he says, verse 10 declaring the end from the beginning it doesn't say knowing it says declaring declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand i shall accomplish all my purpose and someone might be saying well yeah that's the big things but what about the little things he says calling the bird of prey from the east the sparrow that gets eaten by the hawk. He determines that. Even when no one's around in the forest, God declares it. there. God did not create this world and watch what's going to happen and then react to it. It's not what the Bible teaches. Calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country, that would be a prophet. Everyone would say, well, of course God did determine that, but even the bird of prey. He says, I have spoken, I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed and I'll do it. This is extreme total sovereignty over everything. Now I'll also point out here, he says, declaring the end from the beginning in ancient times things not yet done. So he declares the doings that happen on the earth so that God is sovereign over everyone, over everyone's choice, over everyone's actions, not in the same way. Uh, so, So our sin, God is sovereign over it, every part of it, but not in the same way. My actions of love come out of me. Love only ever comes out of the fountain of God. There's only one fountain of love, and if I have love, I got it from that fountain, and if I have sin, I did not get it from the fountain of God. So God is sovereign over sin, but there is no evil in God. There is no sin in God. Uh, and, And so God doesn't relate uh, to all things the same, but he's sovereign over all things. Uh, Proverbs thirteen thirty three says this: the lost, the lot is cast in the lap. That's what man does, but the Lord are, but every decision is from the Lord. Uh, Proverbs sixteen nine: the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You make a plan, the Lord establishes uh, your steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of God, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That's what will ultimately stand. Proverbs 21, 1 says, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So here you have man exercising his own freedom. We'll talk about that in a moment. Man has a will. Man has a freedom. But it's not separate from the sovereign hand of God. In fact, it's compatible with it. Job understood this. Job twenty three thirteen. he says, but he is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. For he'll complete what he appoints for me and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence and when I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not in silence because of the darkness, nor because of thick darkness covers my face. What are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty, and why do those who know Him never see His day? So, if your view of God has you in a comfortable place, you've created God in your own image. If you're comfortable with God, you've created Him in His own image. Job did not experience himself, although he loved God, He would not have described his relationship with God as comfortable. That's why the title of the message is Running Into the Sovereign God. You have two choices. You can begin to start to create a God in your own image, which is palatable to your own life, or you can happily submit to the God of Scripture, even though you admit, man, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's difficult. And so those are all verses that would point to God's total sovereignty. All right, now let's consider man's condition. You could hear in Plagianism, or semi plagianism or Arminianism or Calvinism, the issue is what state is man in? Because if man is in the state the Calvinist says he's in, totally dead, then the only hope of salvation for any person is the doctrine of election. Election turns into this thing that seems unfair and evil and actually turns into our only hope. Paul says, in love, God chose you. All right? So we don't have to go very far in Ephesians. Right away in chapter 2, we're just going to go real quickly here. He says and you, he's speaking to the believers, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Pelagius said, no, it doesn't mean dead. In fact, you're in the same condition as Adam. It'd be a tough argument to make biblically. And then it says, in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you don't have a sinful nature because you sin. You sin because you have a sinful nature. You realize that. You sin because you're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You you don't have to teach the two-year-old to be selfish. Every intent of man's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Man is dead in such a way that he's described as... uh, a child of wrath. You can't be unborn from the family you're in. You're by nature is deadness. Jesus said to those who didn't have Christ, who didn't believe him, he said, your father is the devil. John said to the Pharisees, you're a brood of vipers. You're children of the snake. All right. So if that's true, then how did they get saved? How did, how did it happen? Look at verse 4. Big turning point. It says, but man began to pull himself up out of his very sick state. That's not what it says, does it? It says, but God... Being rich in mercy. Now, who needs mercy? Good people or sinners? Sinners do. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So that's our state. God doesn't look down. They're all They're all bad, but some are a little better and some are are looking for me. Some are actually going to believe in me. I'm going to pick them. That's not what it says. What it says is that even when you were dead in your trespasses made us alive together with Christ. So that's a resurrection. Adam and Eve sinned. God said, if you eat of the tree, you'll die. They did not die physically that day. They did die spiritually that day. The proof of it is they knew they were naked immediately. They attempt to do work salvation as they cover themselves with fig leaves, and then they hide themselves from God. God made you alive, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, that's all eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. This in the Greek demands that you grab both the grace and the faith. The grace isn't yours. That's not your own doing. The faith isn't your own doing. You're saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So when you see a Christian, what you should say is, look at the work of God. What you should never say is, oh, a good one, a smart one. This is God's workmanship, not by works, so that any man should boast. So the condition man is in, huh? Romans 3, uh, he spends the first three chapters as the prosecuting attorney, Paul does, and he culminates with this final argument, and he says, grabs both Jews and Greeks. Here's what he says. He says, what then? Are we any Jews better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one no one understands if you're going to choose God you have to understand you have to understand it says no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one their throat is an open grave he's like if you want to know they're children of wrath listen to them talk under their their mouth is full of curses and Bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if God looked down the corridors of history, what he's going to see is that no one seeks for God. No one understands. No one loves God. In fact, in his list at the end of chapter 1, he says that all men are haters of God. And so the doctrine of man... takes away any argument that would say God is unjust because what he does is he takes a group of neutral people and then he grabs some of them and he saves them and then he damns the rest. The problem is, or someone might say, you mean to say that you have to believe in Christ in order to be saved? What about the guy, you know, the, the innocent guy on the island that no one's ever got to in the remote tribe?" Well, that guy would be saved, wouldn't he? If he was innocent. But if he was born in sin and he was in rebellion and he never heard the gospel, that's a bad thing. But he got sunset. He got a sunrise. He got a family. He got other people. He got food. He got air. Where did that all come from? Even in his own heart, thankfulness to God didn't come out. Selfishness, complaining, grumbling came out. You see, a lot of the questions that argue against the sovereignty of God and salvation start with a question that has a false presupposition about the people involved. There was one time, uh, and I can't remember if I shared this a couple of weeks ago or not, but Paul Washer had the Young man come to him and says, Man, your your preaching's changing my life, but I found out you believed in election, and how in the world do you expect me to believe in that? That's a difficult doctrine to grasp. And and I I don't know if I can believe in a God like that. And he asked him, he says, Have you ever seen the Lord of the Rings? He said, When the orcs, the the evil, uh creatures that that are storming the castle where the good guys are up there flinging arrows and shooting the orcs. They're actually counting them. They're going, one, two, three. He asked the young man, he says, did you like that part? And he said, well, yeah, everybody likes that part. He says, yeah, but orcs are dying. And he says, yeah, but... (laughs) The orcs are evil, and he says, exactly. You don't, mean, you don't believe man is. You've raised man to a standard where he isn't who the Bible says he is. Do you realize that all of creation obeys God except some fallen angels and the crown of God's creation created in the image of God? Every other part of God's creation obeys God perfectly. And so, when we start with who the Bible says man is, if God were going to pick or choose to bring someone from spiritual death and give them spiritual life in a moment, to bring them from death to life, a resurrection, if God did that with one person, everyone on the face of the earth ought to worship God for his grace and his mercy. Paul's question in Romans 9 is the opposite of ours. Ours is, is how can God be good and not choose everyone? Paul Paul tries to prove in in his uh, letter to the Romans, he tries to argue for how God can be just in saving anybody. See, his issue is the opposite. How can God be good and just and actually save and forgive a sinner, and obviously the answer to that is because He sent His own Son to live the perfect life that we could never live in our place. That's how God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Okay. And <laughs> I thought we were good. We got one more sermon next week. <laughs> I didn't get nearly as far as I thought I could. Um, I want to end by going to maybe one of the most quoted uh, uh, texts in the Bible, and that's John 3, in opposition to uh, God's election. John uh, 3, it's a familiar chapter. This is the story of Nicodemus. We're just going to go really fast, and I'll make a few comments as we go. Uh, now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for there is no one who can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, so this is the teacher in Israel. The definite article is given on Nicodemus' name. Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Does this mean with his eyes or can't get there? I think the answer is yes. Both. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you, one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is not speaking of baptism. Uh, this is him, when he says water and spirit, every Jew would know he's referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22 for like those next 10 verses, which describes the new birth where God goes in and takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And and God puts his own spirit uh, within man and causes him to walk in his statutes. Jesus is saying, unless Ezekiel 36 happens to you, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, That which is born of spirit is spirit. Uh, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Now, Nicodemus is one of the best doers there ever was. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. I want to do it and Jesus says you need to be born again and Nicodemus is saying how do I do that well you can't you had nothing to do with being born the first time you can't have nothing to do with being born the second time and Nicodemus must have been thinking well how does this work and Jesus says it's like the wind you don't know where it comes from or where it goes Nicodemus all you can do in your flesh is produce flesh But that which is born of spirit is spirit. And then he says, um, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, the serpent was the curse, so the Son of Man will be lifted up as a curse, uh, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then we get to the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. So in the context, here's what Jesus has said. Nicodemus, you can't do it. The Spirit has to do it. And then he says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You have the Spirit's work. You have man's responsibility, right? Are you tracking? Often, I've had an Arminian say, whosoever believes will be saved. Whosoever believes will be saved. And I say, amen, amen. God doesn't hold anyone out of heaven. Whosoever will love him and does love him will be saved. Anyone who chooses Christ will be saved. We don't disagree with that at all. Anyone who will receive Christ as their savior will be saved, but the question is is who will? Who will believe? Well, let's keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now look at verse 19. Here's what happened. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So he says, whoever believes in me will be saved. But here's what happened. The light came into the world and the people loved darkness because their works were evil. Everyone who is evil hates the light. We don't look for God any more than a criminal looks for a cop. The reason why we hate the light when our works are evil is we want to hide. We don't want to be exposed by God. He says, this is what happened. The light came into the world and the people loved darkness. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, not everyone rejected Christ. Not everyone rejected him. Well, what are we going to do with those? How did, how, how did they get to where they were? Let's keep reading. And this is the judgment. Light is coming to the world. people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Ah, there was some that did what was true there was some that obeyed christ yeah but they were born evil you would have thought they would have rejected the light what does he say but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in god so how does john 3 really work You need to be born of the Spirit is how it starts. You need to believe is what's in the middle. Here's what happened. No one believed. But those who did believe, it was shown that they were born of the Spirit. That God gave them light. Next week, we'll look at Romans 9. But really, this gets at the heart of the gospel. The Bible teaches that for us to even be able to understand the gospel, we need spiritual insight. We need the Spirit of God to bring spiritual life so that when God gives us spiritual life, what do we do? Of our own will, we choose Him. No one will be saved without making a decision for Christ, choosing Christ. But the question we have to ask is how does a person come to make a decision? Well, the Spirit of God, Ezekiel 36, needs to happen in their heart.